welcome to the pod. Thanks for stopping by. We're going to be finishing off our series today on things that we should stop saying in church. I hope you've enjoyed this so far. I know I've enjoyed it. And thank you for everyone who has left a review and a rating. Thank you for the people who have uh, reached out and give me some feedback. I do plan on doing a, an episode where I take some questions, uh, suggestions, input, and actually a few people have sent me um, some phrases that they would like to get my opinion on, and so I might, I might do an episode where I uh, engage with some of those as well. Uh, but today I want to look at our last phrase in this series, things that we should stop saying in church. And the last phrase that I want to examine and suggest that we stop saying in church is, God killed Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, I've never heard that phrase before. I've never heard any preacher or pastor or anyone say that. But trust me, you have in all kinds of ways, and we're going to look at those in, in a few minutes. And the, I purposely wanted to do this one last because this topic is actually what started my kind of theological journey of re-examination and I guess you could say deconstruction and reconstruction in in some areas. Um, as someone who's in the charismatic world, I um, followed the the ministry of IHOP, uh, the International House of Prayer, very closely, uh, really for probably 10, 12 years, something like that. And in 2015, I just happened to see that they were hosting um, a debate between Pastor Brian Zond, uh, who's somebody I know, and uh, and follow and Michael Brown, uh, who is a Messianic Jew, is kind of has a national ministry, and someone else that I follow. And they were at IHOP, and so I was very intrigued. And the the title of the event was the Monster God Debate, and I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea what they were going to be talking about, but I was intrigued. I I knew these three ministries. What are they going to be talking about? That they're describing God as a monster. And, uh, and so I tuned in and watched, and I'm gonna, I'll link the, the YouTube video to this debate below so that you can see it. And what they ended up talking about are atonement theories, essentially different ways to understand Jesus' crucifixion, how he saves humanity and the world, how his death applies to us, what do we mean, or how, you could say it this way, how does Jesus' crucifixion actually work? What do we mean when we say that Jesus died for my sins? How does that how does that work? And they took two different positions. And I didn't even know that there were different positions on on this topic when I watched this. I grew up hearing the gospel preached this way, and this is probably how you've heard it too. Here's the 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 quick version of how I was always told the story of Scripture, the story of the Bible, and and that this was the gospel. It went something like this. That God created the heavens and the earth and everything was good, and humans were made in his image. And that humans sinned and broke God's commandment. And that because of their sin, the first humans, Adam and Eve, that they were driven out of Eden and they were separated from God. And because of their sinfulness and, and our subsequent sinfulness, that we became 
enemies of God, under God's wrath, and that we are all deserving of God's just and eternal punishment. But thankfully, and this is the good news, thankfully, Jesus came and lived the life I couldn't live, died the death that I deserved, and bore the punishment of God's wrath and penalty in my place so that I could be forgiven and reconciled to God, and that those who accept Christ are now reconciled with God, but that those who reject Christ remain under His wrath and will be justly punished forever by His wrath. And therefore, then we would say, do you want to accept Jesus, right? And then, then they ask. And for my whole life, up until the, the monster God debate, that moment, that was the gospel for me. And it was summarized in a different way with a, a common analogy. So if I wanted to summarize that whole story, or if I wanted to, because that's filled with kind of biblical words and ideas but if I was just talking to someone, this is the analogy that I was always taught to use. This is how I would, how I would frame that in a different way for someone to understand. It would go something like this. You're in a courtroom and God the Father is the judge. You're the guilty sinner. And the devil is the prosecuting attorney with all of the evidence against you, all the wrongs you've done, all the things that you've messed up on, everything that you've ever done. He's got the files to prove that you have done this. He knows it. You know it. Everyone knows it. And that Jesus is your defense attorney, right? He's the one who's going to defend you. Now, I don't know where the Holy Spirit is in this. Maybe he's the bailiff. Maybe he's the secretary taking notes. Maybe he's the jury. I don't know. The Holy Spirit was always left out of this poor Holy Spirit. And that's maybe a whole nother discussion that we we have we've all framed and thought of our salvation apart from the Holy Spirit, but that's for a different podcast, right? But you are this guilty party in the courtroom of God, and that God is just and holy, and that you are guilty. The case is closed. the The closing arguments are over, and the verdict is in. You are you're guilty, but thankfully. Your defense attorney, Jesus, agrees to take your penalty so that you can walk out of the courtroom a free person and that justice is still served. And so everybody gets what they want. God the Father, who's the judge, he gets to execute justice. He gets to say justice has been served. He gets to bring down the rightful penalty. So someone pays for the wrong that's been done. Someone goes to jail. Well, really, someone dies because this is a, a capital punishment case. This is a death penalty case. You're, you're put to death. And, and so that still takes place, but I get to go free. You get to walk out as a free person as if you did nothing because Jesus took your place. And if you've ever heard that version of the gospel, which basically every American has, what you've just heard is that God killed Jesus instead of you or instead of me. That's what you have just heard. Is that God was the judge executing judgment that put Jesus to death. So we've never used, maybe not never, but we have rarely, probably most of us ever have ever actually heard the, the words, God killed Jesus. We've never strung those three words together probably. But I think if we just pause and think about how all of us have heard the gospel 
preached our entire life and the way that we frame it and the story that we put it in, that's exactly what we say, is that God killed Jesus as a punishment for my sin so that I could go free. And in my opinion, there are loads of issues with this. But I want to focus on on just a few that directly relate to our relationship with God. Now, I, I want to do a future series on doctrines and doctrines that I think we misunderstand or oversimplify or that we should we should think a little bit more about. And I actually want to do an episode on this topic where we can get into some of the the theological nuances and stances and arguments and and whatever. But that's not the purpose of of this episode. We'll do we'll do that and some other things. That'll be the where's the Holy Spirit in the courtroom uh, episode. Is he the bailiff? Who is he? Um, and we can get into all of that in a future episode. But here I want to I want to look at really two ways that I think thinking about the gospel, thinking about Jesus's crucifixion as the place where God pours out his anger and wrath and just punishment in order for me and you and the world to be forgiven, that Jesus dies taking our penalty, that that's, that God kills Jesus, that that's the good news, so that he doesn't have to kill us, that justice is still, is still served, but we get to go free. I want, I want to look at two ways that I think when we think about the cross that way, I think it it leads us into really, really bad places. We'll just put it that way. First, when we believe that the good news is that God poured out his wrath on Jesus unto death, we actually pit the Father against the Son. I mean, notice the courtroom analogy. The Father is on one side of the room, and the Son is on the other, and they are fundamentally opposed to each other. They're trying to do different things, right? The Father needs to execute justice because he's a judge and the law has been broken. And Jesus is the defense attorney who's trying to get us off. And so he steps in to take our place. So they're, they're actually working against each other. And in this telling of the gospel, what I've just laid out, what we're actually saying is that we are being saved from the hand of an angry, wrathful, and retributive God. We're actually saying that God the Father sent God the Son in order to save us from himself, God the Father. That's the logic, is that God sent Jesus to save us from himself. And in this telling of the gospel, Jesus and the Father, like I said, are actually working against each other. And if that sounds crazy, you can actually find tons of theologians going back to Calvin himself and maybe some shades of it in, in a church father called Anselm. But really, this view is 500 years old. It's, it's came up with started with Calvin, who was a lawyer, by the way. So that's why he used a courtroom analogy. Right? Go figure. Sometimes it's just that simple, or at least part of it is that simple. Where Calvin and, and then a lot of Reformed um, theologians, these would be the Puritans, so these are the people that form the American church largely, they'll actually explicitly say, and you'll get some even modern ones today, who will actually explicitly say things like, Jesus' death changes God. Some theologian will talk about how 
Jesus' death on the cross changes the Father's no towards us into a yes towards us. And others will talk about Jesus' death as satisfying God's anger or quenching God's wrath so that now he can forgive us and be reconciled to us and so that he would, we could now experience his love. But this idea, the way that most of us have heard the gospel our whole lives, I believe is why almost all of us, and this was my first issue here, I think this is why almost every Christian that I've ever met either has or does struggle with the idea that the Old Testament God is angry and vindictive and wrathful. Because we've all been told our whole lives that the Father is angry and is wrathful. And that the proof of that, we have been told, is the cross. Look at the cross. That's how much God is angry and vindictive and vengeful and wrathful. And that is all meant for you. Thankfully, Jesus took your place. Now, this I want to use a bit of a crude and intense example to drive home a point. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be insensitive or inflammatory or provocative just for the sake, but I, I think when you boil it down, this is actually how most of us view God the Father. And, and, and as a pastor, I'll tell you, I had this conversation all the time. Most of us, I think, actually view God the Father as, as kind of a, an alcoholic dad, a drunk dad, who comes home angry and violent. And we know as his children that we've done some wrong things and that dad is going to take out his anger on someone. That dad is going to take out his violent anger, his wrath on someone. But thankfully, thankfully, we have a big brother named Jesus who steps in front of dad's fist and takes his wrath for us. Now, again, I don't mean to be insensitive or inflammatory or provocative just for the sake of it, but I've met enough people over my years pastoring to know that that is actually a, basically a common belief. And this is why so many people, this is where this gets proved out often, is why so many people, when something is going drastically wrong in their life, they're, they're suffering in some way, their first thought, their first conclusion is that God must be punishing them for the wrongs that they're doing, that God must be angry and he's taking out his anger, that they must have done something in order to incite angry dad. And the image of God as punisher, as retributive, is so deep in us that the first conclusion we jump to when we begin to experience pain or suffering in my life is that this is actually God doing it to us. But is that the father of Jesus? I mean, listen, if you were just to read, and obviously I encourage you to go do this, but if you were just to read the gospel accounts of the story of what happened on Good Friday, would we come to that conclusion based on the narrative or, or based even on the parables that Jesus tells about his upcoming death? I mean, Jesus often speaks about his upcoming death in parable and in even plainly to his disciples. If you were just to read that at face value, would you come to the conclusion that what, what he thinks is about to happen is he's going to take his father's angry, violent wrath upon himself unto death? No, absolutely not. 
during that monster God debate that I watched now six years ago, Brian Zond asked this following question, and it has haunted me. I mean, really haunted me ever since. Where do we find God on Good Friday? When we survey Calvary, where is God the Father? Is he in Pilate, condemning Jesus to death and trying to wash his hands of him? Or is he in Caiaphas, who's demanding blood be shed? Or is God the Father in the crowd venting their anger upon Christ as he walks by, heaping it upon them? No, no. God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, Paul tells us. Where do we find God on Good Friday? We find God on the cross, speaking words of mercy to the criminal, showing care for the brokenhearted who are weeping at his feet, and uttering proclamations of forgiveness to those who are murdering him. I mean, we can't forget that before anything else, the crucifixion is the lynching of an innocent man. It's the angry mob murdering someone who did nothing wrong. So where do we find God on Good Friday? God was in Christ because Christ is God. God is in Christ because God is Christ-like. And in him, there is no unchrist-likeness at all. God was not outside of Christ, pouring out his wrath on him or venting his anger on him in order to forgive us. He was not a judge executing his demand of justice, of retributive justice on him in order that he could forgive us, in order that he could be reconciled to us. He, he's not outside of Christ taking payment from Christ in order that he could do something for us. No, no, no. God was in Christ taking upon himself our anger and our wrath and our sin and our injustice and showing us that he was never far from us, that he's always nearer to us than we could have ever imagined, that he was more merciful and more kind than we could have ever imagined. He was more forgiving than we could have ever dared, hoped, or dreamed. The first reason we need to stop saying that God murdered Jesus is it makes the Father out to be a monster. And most of us have read the Old Testament and do read the Old Testament that way. That's why we get the dichotomy that all of us face between the angry God of the Old Testament and the nice, merciful Jesus. The only reason we ask that question, I think, is because We've read into the story, we've read into the Old Testament, this assumption that we've, we've come to learn in our telling of the crucifixion, in the telling of the cross, that this is what God the Father was doing because this is who the God, God the Father is and needs to do, that he is angry and wrathful and that he needs that thing in him to be satisfied. He needs the penalty to be paid. He, and you'll even hear preachers say this. He can't just forgive. He has to punish sin. And my question to, to people who would say that is, then what do you do with all of the places previous to that that Jesus is forgiving people? And why can't God just forgive? Now, some will say, well, because sin has to be punished. No, sin doesn't need to be punished. Sin needs to be healed and the world needs to be set right. What Jesus is doing on the cross and what the Father is doing in Jesus is not 
punishing sin as if that fixes the problem. What he's doing is he's refounding the world, which is why he's buried and resurrects in a garden. This is the imagery. Is that he's, and this is why Paul calls him the, the second Adam, because he's refounding the world in himself. He is the new man. He is the end of God's good creation, the true image of God, the true image bearer. And we have to read then the Old Testament in light of that. But God is not outside Jesus executing vengeance. Secondly, in our common telling of the story that I've already laid out, the problem is that we've been separated from God and that He's distant from us and that we're distant from Him. And standing between us are two things, our sin and the necessary penalty for it. But there's also another key word here, and that is separation. And so the preacher will often say that the cross is where Christ was separated from the Father for us so that we could be reconciled back to God. Now, you also maybe have, have seen this image before where there's a canyon and God is on one side and we're on the other and there's this chasm between us and then this cross is kind of in the middle where we can then reach each other again, right? So the core issue is, is separation. The passage that's often quoted to talk about this separation is Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jesus prays while he's hanging on the tree, while he's hanging on the cross. And if you were to read Psalm 22 in its entirety, it sounds like the crucifixion. Now, we, we can get into the, the, to the weeds of whether it was actual prophecy or, or whether we're reading Jesus' crucifixion back into it. To me, that doesn't matter a whole ton, at least not for this conversation. But you can read it, and in, in the psalm, we get mocking crowds. We get the Christ's hands being, hands and feet being pierced and nailed. We even get his clothes being divided and, and gambled for. And this turning away from God, of, of God, this turning away of God from Jesus is said to be taking place because God can't look upon sin, and in that moment, Christ is becoming sin. And so he is taking on our separation from God. He's being separated from God just as we've been separated from God so that we can be brought back to God. The idea here is that God can't look on sin, and so Jesus is becoming sin, and he's got to turn his eyes away. And that idea and that imagery of God not being able to look on sin comes from the prophet Habakkuk in Back at one thirteen, where the prophet literally says, Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And so the logic goes that God must, for the sake of his own eyes and his own holiness and his own purity, turn away from his son just as he's turned away from all of us. Right? We've sinned and God has turned away from us. He can't look at us. And so his solution is Jesus is going to come, take our sin, and he's going to turn away from Jesus uh, in our place so that he can turn his eyes back to us. But in both of these cases, in in these passages, Psalm 22 and, and Habakkuk 1, all we have to do is keep reading the passage. We, we, we stop short. In Habakkuk, the very next line, literally the very next line is, so why do you look on those who deal treacherously? 
So the prophet is not saying, God, you can't look upon sin. He's, it's the opposite. He's trying to understand what kind of God actually does look upon sinners rather than turn away from him. Is the exact opposite. He's saying, Lord, you are holy and pure. How is it that your eyes can look upon this sin? Why do you look upon those who deal treacherously? I don't understand. And in Psalm 22, by the time we get to the end of the psalm, starting around in verse, I think, 21 or so, we hear the same psalmist who exclaimed that God had forsaken him say that you, God, you have not hidden your face from me, but you have heard me when I cried. So on the cross, we don't, when Jesus prays this, we don't see the Father turning away from the Son, but we see the exact opposite. We see the Father is looking directly at his Son and is answering his prayers. And when we see God through the lens of one who pours out his anger and wrath on sinners, right? we said that that causes us to see God in a particular way as fundamentally violent and retributive and wrathful. And that was our first point. But it also causes us to misread Scripture and then from there misunderstand our relationship with Him in that we end up seeing God as fundamentally distant. And this distance, we said, is basically the result of sin. So what Jesus experienced, like I've already said, is because that's what we've experienced. So we personalize it. And we assume that then any time that we feel distant, it must be because God is angry with me. And the number of times I've heard this as a pastor, if I had a nickel, I would be rich. And when things begin to go south or when we just don't feel, and this is especially true in the charismatic church, when we just don't feel him, when, we're, when we don't have the experiences, we end up interpreting that as we must be doing something wrong because God's fundamental disposition towards wrongdoers is distance. He stays away from them because this is how we've told the story of the, the cross, that God was distant and needed to be brought near. Now, again, there is a sense in which we've been separated from God. I'm not saying that, that there isn't. And the Bible does use some of that language. But I think we have drastically overstated that case and we've absolutized it in a way, if I could put it that way, in, in, in kind of an unhealthy way. And it's caused us to, to, again, misread the story in the same way that all of us, most of us, read the Old Testament and we end up with a picture of God in the Old Testament as something fundamentally different than Jesus in his disposition towards us, that God is, in the Old Testament, is angry towards us, and in Jesus, he loves and forgives us. We do the same thing when it, in terms of distance. We see God in the Old Testament as distant from us, and that Jesus then is the one who has come near to us. And this is how we often frame our conversations about the incarnation, that God has come near. And, and again, there's a sense in which that's true, but I think if we, if we make that the sole lens, which I think most of us have, we end up just grossly misreading the story. I mean, let's just go through a couple stories in the Old Testament. I think from the garden onward, what we actually see is not a distant God, but it's a God who is always drawing near, always coming after us, always pursuing us. 
So in the garden, when Adam and Eve fall, what's the first thing that happens? Well, God comes down to walk with them. And then he clothes them with animal skin. So we have to see this from the very word go when sin enters the world. God's first act towards sinful humanity was mercy and not wrath. It was atonement and not punishment. It was kindness and not anger. And that was what we dealt with in kind of the first point. And it was also nearness and not distance. He came near to them and he made a way for them to stay near. Now, fast forward a little bit. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Before Cain kills Abel, God comes to him and warns him. Says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. After Cain kills Abel, he comes and God comes and places a mark on Cain's forehead to protect him so that no one can take vengeance on him or his family. Fast forward to Abraham when God is going to overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah. He first talks to Abraham and is actually talked down, right? Would you spare for 50, for 40, for 30, all the way down to 10? So he, he's trying to, he's, he's drawing near even to Sodom. And then when he sends the angels into the city, he spares Lot. And we're already told that Lot is not righteous. That's clear from the narrative that he has been drawn into the life of Sodom. And yet God goes to pursue him and spares him and his wife and his family. And they're pleading with him. And they even wait to, for them to get out of the city before, before anything happens. After Abraham, staying with Abraham's life, but after Abraham doesn't trust God for the promised child and sleeps with Hagar and Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, he sends Hagar and the boy away. And Abraham actually does this basically with all of his children. He sends them away. And God actually shows up to both Abraham, or to, excuse me, to Hagar and to Ishmael. And he protects them and speaks to them and makes a covenant with them. And to Hagar, who, remind you, is an Egyptian slave woman who has an illegitimate child. You don't get any lower on the totem pole than an, an Egyptian slave woman with an illegitimate child. She's the first person to actually name God in Scripture. He reveals himself to her in such a way that the first name ever given to God in the Scripture is by an Egyptian slave. And we can go all the way through the Old Testament. We could do story after story. But when we come to Jesus' life, because we have started from a certain view of the cross, that God is distant from us, and, and we've, we've made that the, the sole overwhelming problem that needs to be solved, and it's, on, and it's our fault, right? We're the, the ones to blame for that. We end up getting to Jesus' life and we seem to forget that he is God. And so who do we see? But if we just remember for a second that Jesus is God, who do we see him with all the time? We see him with sinners, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with lepers, with the unclean, with the broken. He's always looking at, to reference back to Habakkuk, he's always looking at and surrounding himself with the poor and the sick and the outcast of society. And in the Gospels, who is it that is constantly trying to distance themselves from the very people that Jesus is associating with? It's the Pharisees. They're the ones who refuse to look at sinners. They're the ones who refuse to be around beggars. They're the ones who refuse to sit with the unclean. They're the ones who are always casting judgment. They're the ones who bring 
the woman caught in adultery and demand that she be put to death and that the penalty come. That's them. But sadly, our preaching of the cross has propagated a view of God that makes him look a whole lot more like Pharisees, cold and angry Pharisees, than making him look like the merciful, loving servant we see in the person of Jesus. So the story of Scripture is not that God is distant, as if he's somehow biding his time until Jesus comes, but that he's pursuing us, that he's always drawing near, that he's always been close to us. That the story of Scripture is that God has always been like Jesus hanging on the tree. That God has always been like Jesus. And so we need to stop saying that God killed Jesus in all of the various ways that we do because he is not in his essence angry, wrathful, violent, or distant. God is love, and God is like Jesus.